Good morning. I will probably start by saying that if the title and later on if the message itself sounds familiar, it is because I borrowed quite heavily from last year's Easter message. Um, hopefully not out of laziness, but because I think, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. I think there is a theme with resurrection that, uh, that always applies, no matter which year it is. Um, and also, probably, God has blessed us with tremendous growth, and so probably about half of us weren't here this time last year. Um, and so I think it's a good, again, to focus on, uh, on the, not just the personal significance of Easter, but also the cosmic significance. And these things are both true. I think we live in a very pietistic age, which simply means that we, we tend to take spiritual truths from the Bible and personalize them, which is good. But sometimes we do that so much so that we don't see the cosmic significance of what it is uh, that Christ has accomplished. And so this morning we want to make personal application, yes, but we also want to see the universal claims that King Jesus makes. And so I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 4, 1 through 4. And once you're there, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the infallible words of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And you may be seated. And may God bless the reading of his word. I had to chuckle this morning. I saw a a news article title on Steinbeck Online uh, this morning that they had interviewed a pastor who said Easter was significant on the Christian calendar. (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. Good to know. Thank you. Uh, But but in fact, this is true. Easter is significant on the Christian calendar. We may even say the most significant holiday that we celebrate uh, together with Christmas. And as I said before, I think sometimes we don't make enough personal application of these things. We think, well, yeah, that's true out there, but really what difference does it make for me? Or we may make the exact opposite error and so personalize it. Jesus came into my world. Yes, that's true. As though the material world out there is left unaffected by what it means that the God-man was incarnated, died, and resurrected. And so we want to say yes and amen to both the personal and the cosmic consequences of Christ's death and resurrection. We know through the Old Testament, the prophets looked ahead to the life, death, resurrection of the Messiah, and Jesus himself foretells of the events about to happen to his disciples as he moves to this climactic moment. For example, in Matthew 20, 17 through 29, Jesus says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See... We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is a text we're all familiar with, uh, and I was recently forced through some reading to reflect on what the significance even of something like this is. We've talked in Sunday school lots the last few weeks about Christology uh, and the, the, the humanness, the manliness of Jesus. 
Um, and in some recent reading, I was forced to confront the fact, not just the humanness of Jesus, but the masculinity of Jesus here. He is walking into a certain trap, and he knows it. Let's not just pass by the significance of Jesus telling his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. That itself is an act of courage. He knows that the trap is set, and he is saying, here, it's our time, guys. It's time to go. Let's do this. That is an act of sacrificial masculinity, taking the hardships of others upon himself. And when we look at the truth of Christ's resurrection, we are looking at an event that is factually and historically true and spiritually significant. The resurrection of Jesus is not just another historical fact to put on your calendar, like the election of a new president or the start or the end dates of a war. It is historically true, yes, but it is much more significant than those mere events. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is a defining point and a hinge of world history. We even mark, and I was talking about this, uh, this last week with someone, we mark, to this day, we mark history by the advent of Jesus. What is year zero? The coming of Christ. We mark history, B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And some of our contemporary social planners, people who are much better and wiser than us, have tried to move away from that language and they've started using BCE and CE, before Common Era and the Common Era. But guess what year zero still is? Okay. You can run, but you cannot hide from the eternal and universal dominion of Jesus Christ. Okay. So I always say, let's work with it. We can work with BCE and CE, before Christ's empire, and now we are living in Christ's empire. Yes, we can work with this. Year zero is the defining mark of history. Jesus Christ is Lord. So yes, we need to recognize the importance of the resurrection as a historical fact, but let's not confine it to just one moment in history. I've sometimes told the story of two uh, well-known theologians in the 1940s through the 60s, Karl uh, Barth and Cornelius Van Til. Uh, and Karl Barth, being uh, almost liberal, uh, was saying some very slippery things about the resurrection. And finally, in one interaction, Cornelius Van Til said, Okay, Mr. Bart, if there was a camera in the grave of Jesus Christ, what would it have captured on Easter morning? And Karl Barth's answer was nothing. The camera would have caught nothing. How did Karl Barth understand the resurrection? Well, the ethics of Jesus continue on in my life. I have a spiritual experience when I sing the songs and tell the stories of Christianity. Therefore, Jesus is resurrected. But friends, our claim about resurrection is much stronger than that. It's not just a spiritual feeling in memory that we get, in memoriam of Jesus Christ. And just this week again, the, um, the president of Union Theological Seminary, which is one of the flagship seminaries for theological liberalism, went on to talk... Uh, on her social media about how just because we celebrate the resurrection, like, it doesn't mean a resurrection happened, guys. We celebrate the resurrection because we sing the songs, we tell the stories, we feel the feelings. But we don't have to be on this business about a bodily, physical resurrection, which clearly any sane person knows couldn't have happened. And even when we sing Easter songs, let's beware of the claims we make about the resurrection. There's one song, I think it's a good song, I sing it with... Uh, with my heart, but let's beware of what we're saying and not saying. Uh, one very common song that we sing at Easter, any liberal could sing with us. You ask me how I know he lives. We can all finish it. 
Does Jesus live in your heart? I hope so. But keep in mind, anybody can sing that song. Right? Anybody who believes in the resurrection or not can say, he lives within my heart. The memories, the myth of Jesus lives on. Our claims are stronger than that merely. We see this confusion often at funerals where we talk about our departed loved ones as though they've already entered into the resurrection, which they clearly haven't. Their body is still in the ground. And how often do we talk about, oh, Grandma's enjoying her flower gardens now. Grandma got to meet her dad who died when she was nine. And I have no question in my mind that my grandma is enjoying the presence of the Lord, but not with her resurrected body yet. And what's the significance? What's the, think even of how small we make the presence of the Lord. It's possible that my grandma recognizes her dad right now. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I think she is far more impressed with being in the presence of Christ than she is with whatever flower garden may await her in the resurrection. Resurrection is significant. The resurrection is like the word of God in the sense that it is self-authenticating. In other words, there is no higher authority to which we can appeal to prove this thing. If you use something other than the Bible to prove the Bible, you've made that thing your ultimate authority. The word of God must be the highest self-authenticating authority, as is the resurrection. Because the resurrection is a historical fact, yes, it makes sense that there's plenty of supporting evidence. But because it is a fact which gives history all its central meaning, we need to see this in the other way too. The resurrection is not just a thing which we need to prove. The resurrection is the proof itself. The resurrection proves to us that Christ is who he says he is. The resurrection proves that the Father's wrath has been fully and finally spent, and he is satisfied with the offering of his Son. The resurrection proves that we too, everyone in this room and all of our departed loved ones will be resurrected one day and that our bodies are in fact designed to live forever. Death is a corruption from sin. It's not a design feature. The resurrection is what powers the preaching of the apostles here in Acts 4 and the impact of their preaching is further proof that the same spirit of God which raised Christ from the dead is making sure the gospel does its work as it goes out. There is one long, sustained push by the Holy Spirit through the events of Acts. We see that in Romans 11, it says that it is through the Spirit uh, that God raises Jesus back to life. And this is the same Spirit who comes in Acts 2 to reverse the curse of Babel at Pentecost, where the curse of many languages now converges back to the gospel being heard in everyone's native tongue. In Acts 3, Jerusalem is fast becoming a powder keg. Think of Jerusalem like this room that's just filling up with fumes and there's so much pressure and so much suspense building all it's going to take is for somebody to light a match and this whole thing is going to go off as indeed it does we may wonder when we think about christology and what it means that jesus came as a man the god man we may wonder how it is possible for god the son to die but maybe this is the wrong question maybe we should rather ask that how we ourselves could know that death can be conquered unless Jesus, the God-man, walks right into it. The curse of God's wrath is satisfied because Jesus did walk right into it. Death is defeated and destroyed in the very same manner. Jesus walks right into the heart of it. And just like a type of Christ in the Old Testament, Jonah had to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the belly of the beast, so does the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. Christ goes into the belly of death and proves his authority over it when he comes walking back out three days later. 
The resurrection is the proof that God is satisfied with Jesus' payment and that death has once and for all been defeated. And as we saw in the opening two verses here, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The priests are able to hear Peter's preaching, and they are annoyed since they specifically uh, were blamed for Christ's death in chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 17. And here the captain would have been second in command only to the high priest. We talked not long ago about the Sadducees and and the way the Jews kind of divided into four camps. The Zealots, who were kind of the the violent political revolutionaries. The Pharisees, who started off well as a back-to-the-Bible movement and became ingrown and legalistic. The Essenes, who were kind of those who were just going to withdraw from society and be the Stille im Land. And the Sadducees, who were the theological liberals of their day. And because they were theological liberals... They had the most political influence. Liberals are easy to control by the state. Their liberalism made them very accommodating to the spirit of the age. They did their best to blend their old religion with Greek thought, which meant that they were much more acceptable to the governing authorities than the other Jews who wanted to maintain their Jewish traditions. Their privileged position meant that they could work closely with the Romans to protect their economic and political interests. And the majority of the Jews did hold to a belief in a future resurrection. And that's one of the the key theological differences that separated the Sadducees from the more Orthodox Jews, is that the, the Orthodox Jews believed in a physical resurrection. The Sadducees did not. But the majority of the Jews did hold to the biblical idea that's even in the Old Testament of a future resurrection. And we have indications it's not fleshed out as well in the Old Testament as it is in the New Uh, But there are indications that this is Orthodox Old Testament belief. Some commentators have looked at Jonah 2 in particular and said that it's quite possible that Jonah physically died and was resurrected in the fish. Not just that he was spared from death, uh, but that he actually died. I'm not sure if he did or he didn't, but he most certainly died a typological death in the heart of the earth. We know from the account of Hebrews 11, verse 9, that Abraham seemingly expected not just that, he would, that Isaac would be spared, the, the expectation, according to Hebrews 11, is that Abraham expected that Isaac would die and be resurrected back to life with him. Working with the same understanding, Martha expected that her brother Lazarus would be resurrected after his death. So the majority of the Jews did see future resurrection being taught in the Old Testament, but the Sadducees did not share this view with them which is why they were so annoyed at the preaching of Peter and the apostles. And look closely at the language of verse 2. It says they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Note closely. They weren't just asserting that Jesus himself was resurrected. And they also weren't saying that the righteous are resurrected because of their righteousness. What they are proclaiming is that humans will be resurrected, but the basis of that resurrection is this Jesus, whom they had crucified. Christians are resurrected because we have died to our old nature in Adam and we have been made alive and declared righteous in Christ. All of our covenant curses got put on Jesus as our scapegoat. And after he suffered those curses and paid them in full, he came back to life. And this coming back to life demonstrates that God was satisfied with that penalty. Raising Christ back to life vindicates the perfection of his payment. 
Jesus went through the belly of death and back to life on our behalf as our older brother. He walked through ahead of us. And this is exactly the language of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the premier uh, New Testament passage on resurrection. You can turn there if you like, but I will read it here. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to him. So the significance of Christ's resurrection is that he appears in the middle of history and he pulls up the end of history out of the grave with him. Think of this long timeline that goes from the beginning of creation to the end of history. And Jesus reaches down and pulls that out of the ground and out from the end of history comes hints of what is about to come out of the grave with him. These things become final realities at the end of history because Jesus has established them in the middle of history. And there is so much deep symbolism that happens around Christ's death and resurrection that in one message we can barely scratch the surface. In John 19, 17, it says, So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Jesus is crucified on a cross that has been pounded deep into a skull. And this is reminiscent of God's words to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the fact that the cross itself is getting impaled into a skull is a symbolic picture of how it is ultimately the serpent's head which is crushed in this transaction. It is the serpent who walked into his own trap. If the authorities that would have known what they were doing would have known the significance of what was about to happen, that it was their undoing, they would have never crucified Jesus. What they thought they were doing by killing Christ is closing the gate between heaven and earth. Not knowing what they were actually doing is kicking it wide open. All heaven is about to break loose because of what they were doing. So not only is the place of the skull so-called because the rock looks like a skull, and you can Google this, the rock of the skull looks like a human skull. Its geographic features look like a skull. But according to Christian and Jewish tradition, there are additional meanings as well. The tradition of the Jews and some of the early church fathers was that Noah took the skull of Adam on the ark with him and that his son Shem buried this skull of Adam at this rock after the flood. There's no biblical data that would support that or deny it, but it is the tradition of the Jewish people, and as I mentioned, some of the, the fathers mentioned this as a historical fact as well. I'll leave that to you. But if this is true, this is another layer of significance to how the seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent with his death on this very hill. Another fascinating layer of meaning comes from the account of David and Goliath. David is not only Jesus' physical ancestor, but very clearly serves as a type of Christ, as he serves Israel as an unlikely shepherd king. And his chief opponent, Goliath of Gath, as he is called in 1 Samuel 17.4, is from the line of giants, who again, there's some weird symbology happening there. Is this just a tall breed of people? Or are these people descended from angel-human hybrids? It depends how you understand the passage that the sons of uh, man 
uh, or the sons of God looked at the daughters of man, whether that's just intermarriage or whether that's an angelic human hybrid. You can do your own research on that. <clears throat> but we do know that these giants do descend from ungodly family lines at the very least. And the contest of David and Goliath is a typological contest between the seed of the woman, David, and the seed of the serpent, Goliath. And Goliath's serpent-like qualities are certainly hinted at in a not-so-subtle manner in 1 Samuel 17, which describes him as being covered in bronze scales. Interesting. Remember in Numbers 21 when Moses held up a bronze serpent for the sins of the people as a stand-in? Here's Goliath, a bronze serpent. David's method of killing the giant is with a rock that sinks into his head. Interesting. Forehead is crushed. The seed of the woman has crushed the skull of the seed of the serpent. And not only this, but David disarms Goliath and cuts off his head with his very own sword. Just like Satan walks into his own trap that he set for Christ, uh, Goliath has his own sword cut off his very head. His plans have been turned against him. And according to 1 Samuel 17.54, David carries Goliath's head back to Jerusalem and puts it up on display on a post for all to see as they do a victory lap. And again, tradition has it that it was at this very location at the place of the skull. So now we see at least three layers of significance for what this means that this place is called the place of the skull. The name Goliath of Gath is based on the Hebrew root words Gola and Gatha. Remember what he's called, Goliath of Gath, Golagatha, Golgatha. This place is named after this confrontation. The seed of the woman destroying the seed of the serpent, cutting off his head after bruising it. So when Adam's disobedience at a tree is undone by Christ's obedience on a tree, the contest between these two seeds reaches its ultimate fulfillment and termination point. Christ's heel is bruised by the nails that held him. And as the blood flows down his feet into the skull in which the cross is impaled, we are taken back through all of redemptive history from David and Goliath back to the garden and to God's promise to the woman that she would bear a, a skull-crushing seed. On Good Friday, we have reminders of Christ's crown of thorns. And from the standpoint of the Romans, the sole meaning of this crown doesn't go much deeper than their failed attempt at sarcasm and to humiliate Christ. But from the standpoint of God who is telling this whole story and using these people in ways that they themselves don't understand, the meaning of this crown is more profound. In the curse of Genesis 3 is the warning that life would be hard due to thistles cursing the ground. And the fact that Christ literally takes this curse of thistles upon his very head is another reminder that he is the true and greater Adam, our new covenant head. And so today on Easter, as we recall the various accounts of Jesus coming out of his tomb, I want to ask you, if you've read John's account of this, have you ever stopped and thought about it? Maybe since last Easter you have. In John 20, verses 11 through 15, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is something that I have noticed since last Easter. There's angels guarding both sides of the entrance here. Two angels. You look back to the way God protects the garden with angels at the east gate in Genesis 3.24, guarding the tree of life. And further, think of the imagery of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant when God says, put an angel at the head and at the foot and spread their wings over it so that they can guard this mercy seat. This is not a throwaway detail that there's an angel on either side of this opened tomb. Further, why would she have assumed him to be the gardener? The first person to encounter the risen Christ was Mary Magdalene. It happened in a garden. At first, Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. A logical mistake or a prophetic mistake or a beautiful mistake. Or perhaps not a mistake at all. On Good Friday, Jesus was buried in a garden. A garden is a place to cultivate and grow living things. An appropriate place for Jesus to be buried. A few days before his crucifixion, Jesus had said, Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, John 12, 24. On Holy Saturday, the Son of God was a holy seed sown in a peaceful garden. On Easter Sunday, the garden brought forth the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead, Romans 1, 4. The first seed raised by God in the garden of resurrection became the gardener. When Mary Magdalene supposed him to be the gardener, she was exactly right. Jesus is now the gardener of resurrection, cultivating new life in all who believe. The first Adam was a gardener who failed in his task, and the world became a wasteland of war and suffering and ruin and sin. But the second Adam succeeds in his task. Christ will restore the ruined garden. With Christ as the gardener of the new creation, we have a view of victory. We are on the right side of history. Commenting on this, G.K. Chesterton says, On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the empty grave and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. It was not so much Christ as the world which had died in the night. What they were looking for at the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but of the dawn. So the resurrection in Jesus gives us a picture of two different worlds. Christ is killed in a world of corruption and death, and he steps out of the tomb into a world in which he has started to make all things new. When Jesus steps out of that tomb, having conquered death, this is why we can say, together with theologians of the past, that there is not one square inch in the cosmos over which the resurrected Christ does not say, Mine! This is mine! I own it! I have conquered death! This belongs to me! Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And there are other major events in the story of redemption where different worlds are pictured. I've talked before about in 2 Peter 3, where it talks about the world that then existed was, uh, was deluged with water and perished. This planet has experienced several waves of new worlds on it. Noah's world is gone. 
There's a new world. And with Christ, this pattern continues. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This replacing of old worlds with new worlds is a common theme. It all happens on the same planet, but there's been many successions of worlds that this planet has seen. And Christ brings in a new one out of the grave with him. We have that picture. There's a new woman in a different garden with a better gardener who has not failed, all to point to the fact that a new creation has indeed been inaugurated. And the fact that Jesus steps out of the tomb into a new creation is also why we gather on Sunday mornings. The Christian Sabbath has moved from the seventh day to the first. The resurrection happens on a Sunday, and this is why we call it the Lord's Day. This is why we are accustomed to meeting on the Christian Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, the first day, rather than on the Jewish seventh day. In that system, where we have a seventh day Sabbath, the pattern makes sense, right? You work for your rest. The Christian first day Sabbath, it also makes sense. We rest and then we work out of that rest. Christ has accomplished it. We work out of our place of rest. We're not working for our rest. In the new light, in the new creation, life does not lead to death, but death leads to resurrection. And so knowing that the old sinful pattern, the old world of death and decay and corruption, is about to suffer a significant blow, are we better able to understand uh, the intense concentration of demonic activity that we've seen as we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew? Of course there's going to be demonic activity concentrating around this event because they know something significant is about to happen. It's like a weak defense trying to do a goal line stand on the one yard line when the other team uh, is setting up for their final touchdown. And we may notice that there is still so much corruption and decay left in this world. Surely this can't be it. And it's not it in the final consummated sense. I sometimes like to use war analogies because I find them helpful. Think of the lag time between D-Day and the men landing on Normandy and the decisive victory that that established. And then it still took several weeks, months even, before formal uh, victory was announced, before the terms of surrender were given. This works itself out. Think of a wedding ceremony. Uh, From the time of a promise is made, from the engagement to the consummation, things are working themselves out. But the, the inauguration has, in fact, been established. And we are living in that time where we await for the consummation of all things when Christ returns at the end of history to destroy the last enemy, which is death. It's like the stone chip that has slowly spent all winter kind of slowly growing along your windshield. Maybe none of you have had those stone chips. Have you ever noticed they take all winter to make it all the way across? Or maybe we can think of it like a fire when we go down to our cabin in the bush and it's cold and it's minus 20 in the cabin same as it is in the outside we start a little fire and you come back an hour later and now the fire has done its work but it's the same fire that we started with just a little paper and kindling now it's doing its work it's the same fire in full bloom in verses 3 and 4 it says and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And the reason that the apostles are put in custody is because they were arrested in the evening. So the sacrifices were done for the day, and the Sanhedrin was not going to reconvene again until the following morning. But while the apostles are in jail, the church keeps exploding. The preaching of the gospel goes on. And there's an emphasis here on 5,000 men, which may 
be 5,000 people. Uh, but very likely, these men are stand-ins as covenant heads of their homes. So it's very likely that this actual number is three or four or even five times bigger than that. So the temple authorities are quickly learning that they might put Christ's ministers in jail, but you cannot put the Holy Spirit behind bars. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that filled the believers at Pentecost, that gave boldness to the apostles to preach, is the same spirit that is planting saving faith in the hearts of people today when they hear the gospel. This is all part of one long sustained push of the Holy Spirit who energizes the preaching of the gospel in all ages. This is the same Holy Spirit who continues to open eyes in unbelieving friends and family today. This is the same Holy Spirit whose work it is to take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh as Keith spoke about on Friday so that we can see Christ for who he is. And the pattern of the preaching of the apostles isn't to slowly you know, build this cumulative case towards the resurrection, thus leaving the unbeliever in charge of their own decisions. And they will accept the resurrection if they, in fact, are satisfied that it is 47% more likely that the resurrection occurred than that it didn't occur. That's not authoritative preaching. That's not authoritative apologetics either. Of course, the evidence supports the resurrection because the resurrection is historically and factually true. But an unbelieving mind does not ever treat evidence as neutral or objective. Evidence on its own will never, ever convince under any circumstances. After people saw firsthand how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, for example, it says in John 11.45 that many of the Jews believed. Many. That means some people were there who saw a man walk out of a grave and that was still an inadequate burden of proof for them. They still did not believe despite that level of evidence. Evidence apart from the Holy Spirit will never convince and never convict. So I am arguing that the resurrection is not so much the thing to be proven. It is the thing that proves everything else. How do we know that Jesus was the Son of God? He was resurrected from the dead. How do we know that God considered Jesus' payment as full and final? He was resurrected from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is coming back at the end of history to judge the living and the dead? Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. How do we know that we will be resurrected to enjoy the consummated new heaven and new earth with Jesus forever? Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You see the difference here. The resurrection is the proof. This is the proof by which we prove everything else. Immediately after Jesus' resurrection, Acts 1 verse 3 says that Jesus presented many proofs of his resurrection as he preached the kingdom. And in John 20, Thomas gets visible proof, supporting evidence, of Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus tells him that those who don't see but believe are blessed. And we should not be of the mindset that it would be easier to believe in the time of Jesus than it is today. Or that it would be better to be living back then instead of now. In many ways, we are in a much better position today. We live in a time after Christ's ascension back to heaven, where he is ruling heaven and earth, and he has sent us his Holy Spirit, his helper, to give us the eyes of faith, so that we have something much more sure than personal experience. As much as people put weight on their personal experiences or their religious experiences, and we're thankful when God gives us those moments. But the apostles know that there's something far more authoritative, far more certain than what you can see with your eyes. Your senses fail you. One thing will not fail you. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 16 through 19, the same Peter that we're reading about in today's passage, that there is something more sure than his own eyewitness account, and that is the Word of God. Our senses deceive us, and our experiences are notoriously untrustworthy. But the Word of God is sure, and the Word of God verifies both the truth and the meaning of the resurrection. And that's what I want us to think about as we celebrate Easter, the meaning of this resurrection. When our first parents fell into sin, God warned them that on the day that they ate the fruit, they would surely die. Yet physically they kept living. So what's happening here? And I would say in one sense, they did die immediately. They died a spiritual death of separation from God. There's now a chasm between them and God that didn't exist before. And so this spiritual reality starts a process of decay which culminates in their physical death which is the separation of body from soul. And our redemption follows the same pattern, but in reverse. Resurrection starts as spiritual rebirth. So if you're a Christian this morning, there is a sense in which you have tasted the first fruits of the resurrection. You have been spiritually reborn. We are no longer separated from God, but now we're in union with Him. And He adopts us back into His family. And the spiritual reality sets about a process of putting things back together, which culminates in the remarriage of the body and the soul at the resurrection. These things have been separated by death. Resurrection puts them back together in a glorious way. The graves will open up and spit the bodies back out, just like the tomb of Jesus did. He is the first fruits. We follow that pattern. So many of us have departed loved ones who are right now, at this very moment, in a way we don't fully understand, present with the Lord in a spiritual sense. But the ultimate hope, the last chapter of history is still ahead of them. The final hope is resurrection. They are going to be put back together, knit back together, body and soul, never to see corruption again. In a fallen world, in our experience, marriage is far too often a precursor to divorce. But in a resurrected world, divorce is the precursor to marriage. This is why the wedding feast at the end of history is better than the wedding that starts at the beginning of history in creation. In a fallen world, we move from womb to tomb. In a resurrection world, the tomb serves as just another womb, a womb which pushes out everlasting life. And this is the meaning of resurrection. Resurrection is the process by which all things are being made new. All things are being put back together, incorruptible. And so our older brother Jesus walks into the belly of death in order to break out once again. He did this to make sure that we don't go into the belly of the earth on our own accord. He did this to pave a way out for us, out of the grave, into a new heaven and a new earth that he was consummating at his return that we can see his glory and enjoy him forever. And so I want to challenge you, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus in a saving way, then I want to challenge you, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts. Receive the Lord Jesus now. And if you don't know how that works, come talk to one of us elders after the service. Don't harden your hearts. Turn, be forgiven, enjoy new life. Be made new by the gospel. And if you do know the Lord Jesus, then be encouraged that you are already moving along this path of being made new. Slowly but surely, the Lord is preparing you for a future glory, for you will enjoy one day bursting out of the grave, following the steps of your older brother Jesus, body and soul reunited and prepared to live forever in the new heavens and new earth that he is consummating at his return. Let's pray.
Father God, I want to thank you that in the way you tell stories, in the way you have written history, there is no wasted detail. Everything redounds to your glory. Everything is pointing to the glory of your Son. Lord, give us eyes to see that. Help us to see when we read through genealogies and ceremonies in the Old Testament and we think these are dry, dusty details. Lord, forgive us. Give us eyes to see how this is pointing to the glory of your Son. Help us to see it. Help us to see the unity of the story you're telling. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to receive your spirit, to, to know you in a saving way today, that we can know with confidence that at the end of history, we can walk out of the tomb, resurrected, to enjoy eternity with you. Lord, help us to know that. Help us to be contagious as we spread the gospel of new life and of you making all things new with friends, with family, with coworkers, that they too would enjoy you eternally and forever. Lord, and I pray that you would be with us now as we prepare our hearts to take a physical reminder of your death, of your body and your blood that you gave for us and the way you continue to make things new in the church, in our hearts, and in the world. Lord, give us a sense of reflection. Help us to put our sin and our unbelief aside. Help us to know peace with you. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So as you've seen and heard, we are celebrating communion this morning. And Easter reminds us that Christ secures our redemption in all three of his offices of prophet, priest, and king. His resurrection is vindication that he was the true prophet, the eternal priest, and the triumphant king. This meal brings all three of these offices into view. As prophet, Christ teaches, and this meal teaches us true wisdom. We're given words of covenantal grace and reminded that the Father is pleased to seat us at his table and commune with us. As priest, Christ intercedes for us, giving his own body and blood where ours would have been required before a just God. The wrath and grace of the Almighty God are made visible in this meal. Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of bulls and goats, for it says that the church is his because we have been brought by his blood. As king, he rules over us, and this meal enacts the treaty by which only God can make a declaration of peace against sinful rebels. He has given us the terms of peace and now invites us to share in the spoil of his conquest. He sits in triumph over his and our enemies, ruling from his eternal throne. The Lord Jesus accomplishes our redemption as prophet, priest, and king. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And I'll ask our elders to come up. And again, if you're visiting here this morning, we practice open communion in the sense that if you are a baptized believer and you are not under church discipline uh, anywhere else and your conscience is clear that you have peace with God and man, we invite you to partake uh, with us this morning.
don't we have a time of silent reflection and prayer? And then I'll close and we will take the bread. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we call it to you. Lord, I pray that we can take this meal with clean hearts, with joy, that we would not be morbid as we inspect ourselves, but that we would be joyful that you have removed the spot and the curse and the shame of sin. Help us now, strengthen us as we take this meal. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread. juice to wine, the juice is in the middle of the tray.
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can take the cup. Please stand as we sing the closing song.
So receive our charge. In taking a crown of thorns, by following Jonah into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, by having his heel bruised as he crushes the head of the serpent, finalizing the war that his grandfather David started, in experiencing the trauma of having body and soul torn apart, Jesus assumes every covenant curse that God ever threatened against his people. Because his payment was perfect, and because death and the men who sentenced Jesus to death couldn't have the final say, The Spirit vindicates Jesus by knitting his body and soul back together, resurrecting him out of the grave. By stepping out of the world of sin and corruption and into a garden of new life, Jesus establishes the new order in which death no longer reigns. He is pleased to work this new reality out gradually and slowly, starting with the new birth of the soul and culminating in us following our older brother out of the grave and into a new heaven and new earth, body and soul knit back together, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And receive the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And have a very blessed Easter. We will be stacking chairs today, by the way.